You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Why don't you think for a moment how you would describe yourself? And probably for many of us, if we were to ask you, well, describe yourself, uh, we might first think of some physical characteristics we've mentioned, maybe our age, um, maybe the town we live in, um, some hobbies, interests that we have. Um, If we work outside the home, we might mention the place or vocation that we have. But oddly enough, in this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus focuses on three words that should describe every Christian in one degree or another, and that is the words distinct, despised, and delighted. And I don't think any of us, if we're honest, would have used those words when we think of describing ourselves. That we would say, well, we're, we're distinct, uh, we're despised, and we are delighted. So what does it take for us to see ourselves as disciples of Christ with those three words. Well, you may have noticed that if you're looking at your Bible, that typically we think of the Beatitudes as primarily going verses 3 through 12. But you can include verses 13 through 16 in this first sort of opening to the Sermon on the Mount, Because it's within those first 16 verses, not only do you have the eight Beatitudes, but you have an introduction or anticipation of every theme that will be discussed throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. So in other words, we're we're almost at the point now where we've seen a preview of what else is going to be unfolding in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, I wanted us to look at the final beatitude, which specifically comes up in Matthew 5, verse 10. And in thinking about this final beatitude, and what does it mean to see yourself as distinct, despised, and delighted, that's contingent on answering two questions correctly. So the sermon this morning is going to focus on what are those two questions, And how did Jesus answer those two questions, which should be how we answer them as well? So here's the the first question. Uh, 
what happens when you follow Jesus Christ? What happens when you follow Jesus Christ? And I think most of us can probably recall the hymn also kind of morphed into a chorus. Uh, I have decided to follow Jesus. We can kind of think of the words and, you know, I've decided. But what does that really mean to follow Jesus? Well, look at verse 10. And here is the eighth and final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what follows in verses 11 and 12 is actually an expansion or commentary on that last beatitude. So that tells us sort of how that pieces together. And you will notice if you look at that last beatitude in verse 10, the phrase at the bottom is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you go back to verse 3, the very first beatitude, that also included this exact same phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what that tells us is when you have a, a block of scripture where you have the same phrase appear in the beginning, and then it comes up later on in the passage, that that sort of locks that passage together. Uh, it's a term used in an in inclusio, like a literary envelope. So in other words, this is a unit of teaching. And yet, as I'm going to hopefully show you, that this clearly connects with what's said in verses 13 through 16. Even though often in our Bibles, you have sort of a, a paragraph break there. But let's return to answering this question. Well, what happens when you follow Jesus? Well, according to the final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus states right up front uh, to his disciples in this message, that as a Christian, you will be hated by the world. Does, does not shy away from saying that, puts that demand right up front. Now I did say this will happen in varying degrees, but the reality is that something changes. Where, where now we become hated by the world. And, and we need to look at that more closely. So you notice in verse 10, the word, persecuted uh, is in the perfect tense, which means it's pointing back to something that happened in the past that has existing ongoing results. In other words, when did this change happen? When, when suddenly now we become the polar opposite to the values, the perspective of our world. It happened at conversion. The, the moment you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, it was a game changer. No, no longer were you now the object of the world's affection or in harmony with the world's system and values. You now became an enemy of the world. You became hated by the world. Now, on the other side of that, we now become the objects of God's love. But, but the reality is, as this beatitude says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, the word persecuted means pursued after, 
Uh, it can also refer to being accused. And so you notice the next line, if you go down to verse 11, I said that verse 11 and 12 are a commentary, an expansion on what does it mean to be persecuted. So you see in verse 11, persecution is now further explained to us. What, what else does that include? Because I'm certain for each of us, we've not been physically threatened because we're a believer. Uh, we've not been in falsely imprisoned. We haven't experienced economic sanctions against us because we're a follower of Christ. But I guarantee you have experienced some of what verse 11 further defines persecution as. So notice it says in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you. When you now become, because of Christ, an object of ridicule, of people reviling you. So I'm certain in one way or another in our present culture, which is saying sexual identity is defined by the person, uh, where we see this whole kind of deterioration of morals and values, that as a Christian, when if you're engaged in a conversation and say to someone else, well, that's just wrong, you're going to be seen as being judgmental, uh, bigoted, maybe even racist if you say that a certain sinful activity is just wrong in God's eyes. You, you have become an object of insult. You're seen as outdated, not, not changing with our times, uh, holding to something that is no longer true. And so you see in this, it says, now you will not only maybe be insulted, but then go a little further. He mentions persecuted again, the same word in verse 10. But also people will falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You will become at times the object of verbal attack and insults. You will you'll become at times the object of, of lies. People will spread lies about Christians and what Christians believe and what they say. Uh, and, and this presents to us a, a much fuller picture, I think, of the relationship between the believer and the world. And this all ties into that first question. What happens when you follow Jesus Christ? Now, with saying you'll be persecuted, you'll be insulted, uh, people will lie about you, they will spread rumors about you, we want to keep in mind that there's a condition placed on this. So, for example, if you tend to be a person who maybe is obnoxious and very abrupt with people, and then you can't understand why people don't seem to relate well to you, that's not because you're being persecuted for righteousness sake. That's because you're an obnoxious person, and that's a sin issue. You need to deal with that. Because notice here in verse 10 and 11, there's a reason that Jesus puts here that you're persecuted. So in verse 10, you are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, you're persecuted for the sole reason you're seeking to obey God. You're, you're seeking to follow God's will. 
And that's the reason you experience ridicule and are treated unjustly. Not anything related to your offensive mannerisms, but we need to look at the root cause here is because you're standing firm on God's word. You're, you're seeking to be obedient to him. Notice it also says again, then it repeats in verse 11. It says, you will experience persecution, falsely people will say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. So it's very important as Christians, when we do experience opposition from our world, that it's tied to we're seeking to be obedient to God in a way that honors God. In other words, if we've started with the first beatitude being poor in spirit, then we mourn over our own sins and the sins of others. We approach people in meekness and gentleness like Christ, but marked by holiness and strong conviction. If we hunger and thirst after righteousness, if we are merciful, and yet we experience opposition, it is that we will be blessed. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 15. And so keep in mind the Sermon in the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mount, was about a year into Christ's public ministry. So now we're going to fast forward to close to the very end of Christ's earthly ministry. And so you look with me in John chapter 15, the setting here in John 13 through 17 is Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room. Uh, he's giving final instructions. It will observe the Passover. He will institute the Lord's Supper. So you have the same group that was being instructed in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, now coming to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And listen to how he repeats what he said in the eighth beatitude. In John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Now there's an encouragement there at the end of the verse, but, but think back to Jesus's initial conversation here which would get repeated many different ways as he would get closer and closer to the cross. You know, blessed are you when people persecute you. And why will they persecute you? Be because you're following me. And they hated me. They will hate you for the truth that you stand for. D.A. Carson is a uh, present New Testament scholar and professor. Um, but I want you to listen to this statement he made and, and just kind of think about it. I'll read it twice, but he, but he made this comment. If you try to imitate Christ, the world will praise you. If you become like Christ, it will hate you. 
kind of think about what he's saying there. If, if you try to imitate Christ, the world will praise you. If you try to become like Christ, it will hate you. In other words, I think our world does kind of see Christ sometimes as a good role model. You know, be forgiving, be, be compassionate, um, do unto others as you'd like them to do unto you. They, they would like that part of imitating Christ. What they don't like, though, is when we actually become like Christ. Because think of how Christ dealt with sin. Think of how Christ spoke to people in, in great compassion, but never compromising the truth. And so if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, this is what we will be. We will be despised. But Jesus at the same time reminds us as followers of Christ, you are to rejoice when the world hates you. And so go back to Matthew chapter 5, and this is repeated for us in verse 10 as well as in verse 12. Because imagine how the first disciples must have sort of not been able to fully wrap their minds around this. That the, the world is going to hate you. Not that they will just dislike you, but, but they will hate you. They will want to do everything to silence that message that you bring. And to the extent that with Jesus Christ and with many believers in other parts of our world, that persecution reaches its ultimate level of simply eliminating and taking your life. But Jesus says there, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness. And so you notice here in verse 12, it says rejoice and be glad because your great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the beatitude includes in verse 10, the blessing for yours is the kingdom of heaven, that there is a present reality of God's power, peace, and grace that you will experience as a believer as you walk in obedience, even when you become the object of unjust criticism and treatment by others, that that is to be a present reality. But Jesus states very clearly in verse 12, this sense of rejoice and be glad. Now, there you have a tense that is repeated continuously. Continue to rejoice in this. And so that sort of leads us to a sub-question. Well, if this is what happens when you follow Christ, why should we rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted, insulted, and ridiculed? And we have two reasons that are clearly mentioned here. In verse 12, notice it says, in the same way. In Matthew 5, verse 12, we have it mentioned there in verse it says, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, persecution for righteousness sake, for being obedient to Christ and living out the beatitudes of what we are in Christ is proof of your discipleship. 
It is proof that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we should look at this and say, this is exactly what happened to the prophets. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen to any and all who seek to live in obedience to him. We will and do place ourselves in odds with the world. And, and we shouldn't run from that. We shouldn't hide that. But in the very beginning of verse 12, it says, great is your reward in heaven. So now we have another reminder, not just does it presently give proof of our identification with Christ, but looking ahead, persecution and ridicule and insults really are priceless because we're mentioned here of an eternal reward that awaits us. So I want to read for you two different passages. You're free to turn to these if you'd want. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. So in what way are, is mistreatment a priceless experience for you and me in Christ? It's not because we like pain. It's not because we look forward to being despised by other people or made fun of. It's because of the work that we're told they do. And so in 2 Peter 4, you have Paul giving instructions to Timothy. Uh, remember, this is Paul's last letter that will be in the New Testament. So in other words, we have here, in a sense, his, his final charge, his, his last words, uh, before he himself will be executed by Nero. But look with me at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul there encouraging Timothy, reminding himself of this eternal reward that trials and difficulties bring, that he looks forward to this, this crown of righteousness. And, it, and he uses the word there that refers to an athlete's um, like wreath that would be given to one who competes in a race and finishes it. Uh, he's not going to have a kingly crown. None of us will have a kingly crown because there's only one king of heaven. But in Christ, as we endure and walk by faith and persevere in the faith, we should all look forward to receiving the crown of righteousness. So that's an eternal reward. But as Jesus spoke to these disciples whom he loved and who he would remind again later on about the cost of following Christ, he reminds them that there is a present priceless result of persecution and trials in your life. And that comes out in certainly James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. James 1 and verses 2 through 4. 
You have the word trials. Trials is a very broad, comprehensive word, which can include all of the experiences you go through as a follower of Christ. And so in verses 2 through 4 of James 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And notice how that begins. Consider means reason this, think this. Uh, read the scriptures to remind yourself this is true. Because when we're going through difficulties, when we're going through mistreatment by others, um, lies, deceptive things, maybe they're accusing you of as a Christian, that you're not going to feel like this is benefiting you. You're not going to have this warm, fuzzy feeling like, oh, this is really nice. But we need to put our minds on the fact that God says this is the process that he uses, not just to confirm our faith in him, but to deepen it. And so we have, a, as a memory verse, that we want to see each of us grow in full maturity in Christ. That means we should be open and willing to say, Lord, how can you use trials, difficulties, persecution, ridicule in my life as a follower of Christ to produce these qualities in me. And so we see that there is a blessedness to being persecuted, ridiculed in obedience to Jesus Christ. So imagine if you were one of the disciples hearing this. And, and you're hearing it at a time in Matthew 5 where in one sense, Jesus' ministry is growing in popularity. Now, not among the Pharisees and the scribes, but among the general populace, it, it's, it's growing. I mean, they, they have crowds following them. So imagine you're a disciple and you're hearing Jesus say, all right, here's the answer to that first question. What happens when you follow Christ? The world will hate you. And, and you are to rejoice and be glad when that happens to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would be thinking, well, then what we need to do is pull back from the world. We need to isolate ourselves. We need to protect ourselves. Uh, we need to defend ourselves because the world is going to be coming at us. But what Jesus follows with is he answers a second question, and that is, why does the world need you as a follower of Christ? Why does the world need you as a follower of Christ? It, it hates you, but why does it need you? And that's where we come to verses 13 through 16, because I believe that even though we're done with the Beatitudes, what follows in verses 13 through 16 is connected to what Jesus has just said. In other words, if we are clear that our identity in Christ means not just we're despised, but we have a distinct responsibility to the world 
then that answers the question why the world needs us. And so Jesus responds with two powerful images that, that we've all heard before. Uh, the first is the world needs you because you are the salt of the earth. Verse 13, when you put the, the pronoun you at the front of it, it's emphatic. It's emphasizing you individually, but also you corporately as the body of Christ. You are the salt of the earth. So verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now I'm thinking, and there's always lots of explanations on what does this mean about a salt losing its saltiness. Well, salt in those days primarily was a preser preservative. It did give some flavor, but primarily it was to preserve, to, to slow down deterioration, especially in light of not having refrigeration. Uh, the salt that Jesus is referencing would have come from the Dead Sea, so it would have been a mix of different things. Over time, it would tend to have more of an alkaline taste to it, uh, so there would be a slight difference in it. But I think Jesus is reminding us that as believers, we act as a preservative in this world. In other words, our world is sinful, but it clearly is not as sinful as it could be. That God in his grace is restraining the sinfulness of the world. Even though we live in the days of Elijah and Ezekiel, which were days marked by false teaching and, and increasing apostasy. That even in the workplace, in our homes, in our communities, the presence of believers impacts the sinfulness of those around us, even though they're not aware of it. Look at how Daniel's presence in an in evil government in Babylon had a preserving impact on, on those around him. Joseph in Egypt, how his presence in Pharaoh's household impacted the blessings that even Pharaoh experienced indirectly because of Joseph's presence there. And so for you and me as Christians, we, we are salt. We, we are a preservative effect on those around us. Even though they don't realize that, and they are not often appreciative of that, and we respond in the opposite. When it says here that you might lose your saltiness, now, as believers, we, we will never stop being salt if you're genuinely a believer. But I think this is a reminder and a warning that we can see our effectiveness diminish. And that is one of the concerns right now, I think, among many Christians, as you look at our world, has have we lost our effectiveness because often we've tried to become too much like the world to reach the world. In other words, there's very little difference when someone looks at a Christian, quote unquote, when they look at someone who's not. And so certainly it is vital that if we are living out the Beatitudes that have preceded this, we will maintain our effectiveness. 
we will not fall prey to syncretism where we, we, we just sort of lower our standards and compromise and become so much like the world that then we lose our effectiveness to reach the world. And so in thinking, why does the world need you and me as followers of Jesus Christ? Because we are the salt of the earth. But then notice the second very common or powerful imagery in verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. Again, emphasizing you as followers of Christ. No matter where you are, no matter your station in life as a believer, you are the light of the world. And it's helpful to consider this imagery in terms of a world without electricity. So imagine where day and night are clearly marked out for you in a world that does not have electricity. You, you have oil lamps, you have things you can light, uh, but you, don't, you can't just go into a room and flip a light switch and, and make it bright and cheery. You, your environment, your whole internal clock is determined by the difference between daylight and darkness. And Jesus says now to his disciples, um, you are like a town or a city on a hill that, that cannot be hidden. And by saying it cannot be hidden, that it can be seen from a distance, even with oil lamps and other things like that. So it is true as followers of Christ, we, we should not conceal our testimony. We, we mustn't do that. And he brings up the illustration of, of, a, of a lamp in a, in a house. Keep in mind, ancient homes were one-room homes. So to take a small oil lamp and to light it, you would always want to put it on a stand to project as much light as possible to dispel the darkness in that room. It would be absurd to light it and then cover it up. It, it defeats the whole purpose of a lamp, of a light. And he uses that very common imagery to say to his disciples, Here, here's another reason why the world needs you. You are the light of the world. Very similar to Paul saying, you know, how can people come to Christ if they don't hear the message? And how can they hear the message if no one takes the message to them? And, and no one explains it or talks about it or lives it out before them. That is exactly what Jesus is agreeing with here. And notice in verse 12 that this moves the whole, excuse me, in verse 16, this moves the whole discussion beyond just behaviors to why we do this. In verse 16, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before men, being humanity, men and women, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There's the purpose of being salt and light, that they would see beyond you, and you would be a pointer to them of what it means to praise your Father in heaven. Now, now notice he says your Father in heaven indicating here that we would point them to God, which is only possible through Jesus Christ. 
Heather and I were having a, a little conversation earlier this morning, um, and, and it was just related to how each of us can probably think of people who are very moral people. Uh, they seem to have a strong sense of right and wrong, um, a high standard of ethics, but they need us to show them more than just a high standard of behavior. We have to show them how our standard of behavior is founded upon Jesus Christ. It's not founded upon just wanting to be a good person, of wanting to quote unquote, do the right thing. It, it is founded upon the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so in this 16th verse, we have that put before us. The world needs us to point them to Christ to point them to be able to say, you can know God as your father, but that's only possible through Jesus Christ. And so there we have Jesus reminding us what Peter himself would later say in one of his letters to persecuted and scattered Christians. He would say to them that God has called you out of darkness to declare his glorious praises. So the world desperately needs us. Although it will hate us, although it will despise us, it desperately needs us because we are the salt and the light. So go back to that opening question. How would you describe yourself? Well, maybe we need to pray that we would describe ourselves as being distinct, despised, but yet also delighted. In other words, if everyone in the world, in your world, loves you, never has any problem with your relationship with God, with your stance on scripture, then something isn't right. Because if we're following Christ, the world will not love you. Because you're following him, you're seeking his righteousness and his will over love for the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words. They're hard words because immediately we know that for many, they just see being a Christian as someone who is difficult, who is judgmental, who is not in keeping with the times, uh, who just wants to cause division. And yet the reality is that we always want to be careful that it's not our mannerisms that offend people. But Lord, your truth will at times offend. It will divide. And so may we see those times through this lens in the Sermon on the Mount and rejoice when that happens. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.